0: for those of you that know my daughter Mallory, you know that she is uh, really one of the most joyful uh, little girls in the world. She always has a smile on her face. Uh, Sometimes she'll give you kind of the coy shoulder. Um, How many of you have gotten the coy shoulder? Okay, a few of you. All right, you know what I'm talking about. But usually she's just very joyful, very uh, exuberant, uh, nothing like her mother uh, at all. But there's one time there, there have been a few times where I have left the house to go to church or, or you know wherever and as I leave, she is looking, she, she's holding the, we have like a glass uh, a door that goes out towards the cars and she's putting both hands on the glass door and she's just bawling. I mean absolutely bawling hysterically. doesn't happen often, but uh, but occasionally I'll leave the house and she will just erupt into tears. She thinks that I'm forsaking her. I mean, she thinks I am absolutely leaving her, abandoning her never to return. And despite my best efforts, I cannot convince her to stop crying and and to realize that Daddy's going to come home. You know, friends, in the book of Romans today, we're going to see the Lord God Convince us that He is not forsaking us. He is going to convince us. In particular, He's going to convince His people, the Jews, that He has not abandoned them. He has not forsaken them. He is still right there with them, always ready to welcome them back with open arms. So turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 11 today. Romans chapter 11. We're in uh, part eight of a 10-part series in uh, Romans 9,10 and 11 entitled "God's Plan for Israel." In part eight today, we're titling, "Those whom God calls are never forsaken. Those whom God calls are never forsaken." Would you stand with me as we read Romans 11 verses 1 through 10? Romans 11, verse 1 through 10. Paul writes this, I say then, has God cast away His people? Certainly not. For I also am an Israelite of the seed of Abraham, of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not cast away His people whom He foreknew? Or do you not know what the Scripture says of Elijah? How he pleads with God against Israel, saying, Lord, They have killed your prophets and torn down your altars. And I alone am left. And they seek My life. But what does the divine response say to him? I have reserved for Myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. Even so then, at this present time, there is a remnant according to the election of grace. And if by grace then it is no longer of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. But if it is of works, it is no longer grace. Otherwise, work is no longer work. What then? Verse 7, what then? Israel has not obtained what it seeks, but the elect have obtained it, and the rest were blinded. Just as it is written, God has given them a spirit of stupor, eyes that they should not see and ears that they should not hear to this very day. And David says, let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a recompense to them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they do not see and bow down their back always. Heavenly Father, we pray that You would enlighten our eyes this morning as we read Your Word. May it instruct us, may it teach us, about how You are a God who never forsakes, but is always coming near Your people. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Verse 1 again. Paul writes, I say then, has God cast away His people? Certainly not. For I also am an Israelite. Of the seed of Abraham, of the tribe of Benjamin, God has not cast away His people. Whom he foreknew. Of course, we see here plainly Paul's thesis, if you will, of the passage. God has not cast away his people. God has not cast away his people. His answer is short and it is sweet. And he says, essentially, he says, Look at me, Paul writes, Look at me. I am living proof that Israel is not forsaken. Now, up until this point, those of you who have been with us in Romans, we've learned a lot of things about the nation of Israel. Um, Paul has written himself a Jew. He has written uh, reluctantly. He has written with sadness about the state, the status of his fellow countrymen, about their spiritual status. And he said a number of things. At the end of verse, uh, chapter 10, he wrote that they were a disobedient and a contrary people. Uh, Elsewhere in in the book of Romans, in chapters 9, 10, and 11, he speaks of Israel being hardened or blinded to the truth. He talks about how they've collided, or many of your Bibles say they've stumbled at the stumbling stone, which is Christ. They've collided with the message of Jesus Christ. Paul has alluded to the fact in chapter 9 that Israel is presently a vessel of wrath. That is to say that they have... God has turned them over to their hard hearts, to the blindness of their eyes. Paul's writing of Israel's status is not done so with pride. He doesn't do so to say, see how bad they are. Because he himself is a Jew. And in fact, his pre conversion life, when Paul, prior to Paul's conversion, turn over, hold your spot, turn over to Philippians chapter 3, just a few books over. Philippians chapter 3, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians. Paul talks about his pre conversion life. And notice what he says in Philippians chapter 3, verses 5 and 6. Philippians chapter 3, verses 5 and 6. He's speaking about himself here. And he says, I, Paul, circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, concerning the law, a Pharisee. Concerning zeal, persecuting the church. Concerning the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. Turn back to Romans 11. Paul writes here, he says, look, I was just like my countrymen. I was just like the Pharisees. I persecuted the church. I considered myself blameless in all of this. And yet, Paul readily admits that he himself was hardened. He himself was blinded. If ever, if ever there was an Israelite who should be forsaken by God, Paul would have been a prime candidate. And so he writes Has God cast away his people? Certainly not. Look at Me. Look at Me. You see, friends, uh, uh, God, He takes delight in redeeming people who have no claim on it. Our Lord takes delight in bringing redemption to people who deserve it least. Who are least suitable. Who are least fit, who are totally unlikely to receive His mercy, God delights in blessing those people. One of my favorite passages. Turn over one book to First Corinthians chapter one. First Corinthians chapter one, beginning in verse twenty-six. I love this passage. I remember Pastor Arsh before me used to speak on this passage, and it was a favorite of his. But here Paul writes. About the kinds of people that God seems to show delight in. Notice what He says in First Corinthians chapter one, verse twenty-six: For you see, your calling, calling, brethren, that not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble, are called, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise. God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty and the base things of the world and the things which are despised God has chosen and the things which are not to bring to nothing the things that are that no flesh, verse 29, that no flesh should glory in His presence. And then jump to verse 31. As it is written, He who glories, let him glory in the Lord. Did you catch that in verse 26 and following? He said, not many wise, not many mighty, not many noble. God's chosen the weak. He's chosen the base things. He's chosen the things which are not, that no flesh should glory. You see, like so many other portions of Scripture, this passage in 1 Corinthians 1, it demonstrates plainly that the salvation of men and women have nothing to do with their social status, has nothing to do with their intelligence or their holiness or their moral fitness. We're not saved because of anything in and of ourselves. We are saved only by the grace of God. It is He who chooses us, it is He who calls us. So it is with respect to us, and so it is, Paul writes, with respect to Israel. were the conduct of the Jews of Paul's day, were the conduct of the Jews a factor in their salvation, Israel would be cast away. But thankfully, our salvation is not a matter of our conduct. It's a matter of our calling. And so, Paul writes, God has not cast away His people whom He Read that in verse 2. God has not cast away His people whom He foreknew. It's the Greek word prognosko. It means to know beforehand. Even more so, it means to choose beforehand. To set apart. To select. You see, from God's vantage point, our salvation is secure because it is He who secures it. Of course, from our vantage point, we look at, at God's favor, we look at God's blessing, and, and well when trouble comes our way, we begin to think that maybe God's cast us aside, right? From our vantage point, we often lose hope and confidence when life becomes difficult, right? That's that's normal. That's that's standard MO for, for human beings. When when life gets tough, we look up and say, God, why? God why? Paul Paul doesn't deny that we do this. Paul's not so foolish as to suppose that that's not the normal human condition. He doesn't deny that the circumstances of life can often cause us to suppose that God has abandoned us. But notice his response. Notice his response as we continue on in verse 2. Romans 11, verse 2. God has not cast away his people whom he foreknew, or do you not know? what the Scripture says of Elijah. How he pleads with God against Israel, saying, Lord, they have killed Your prophets and torn down Your altars, and I alone am left, and they seek My life. But what does the divine response say to Elijah? I have reserved for Myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal in the face of discouragement, in the face of hardship, right when you're looking up and saying, why God? Why God me? Paul says, appeal to history. Appeal to history. When you're looking up and you're saying, Lord, why is this happening to me? Why is this happening to my family? I don't understand it. Have You cast me aside? Is Your favor no longer on me? You know what Paul says to do? He says, men and women, look at history. I think today in our nation, we're anxious about a great many things. Uh, I, I was speaking to Tony the other night about war in Afghanistan and about my uh, anxiousness toward that war. And uh, But I'm reminded. I'm reminded that Despite what's going on in Iraq and now Afghanistan, and, and perhaps in the future with nations like Iran, we as a nation have overcome no less challenging situations. The American Revolution, World War I, World War II. Do we really suppose that we cannot also get through this present conflict? We've done it before. We're concerned about our economy. We, we look around and we see an economy that's, that's lackluster. We're, we're concerned about it. And yet, some of you, some of your parents, some of your grandparents have come through the Great Depression. Can we not, like that generation before us, get through this time? Appeal to history. We're worried about our pocketbooks. We look at at our bank accounts and we think at the end of, of each day, of each week, do I have enough to support my family to provide a future for my children? And yet, year by year, month by month, day by day, we have not gone without food on our plate and a roof over our head. Appeal to history. We're concerned for our church, our local church, but also the Christian church at large. And we're concerned that that many are falling away from the faith. We're concerned that Christianity is being marginalized. We're concerned that it seems that those who are professing believers, those who are strong in the Lord, are dwindling, are growing weak. And yet, God has not ceased walking with man since He did from the time of Adam and Eve in the garden. Are we really to suppose that our relationship with the Lord is going to fail with this generation? Are we really to suppose that the gates of Hades will prevail over God's church? Appeal to history. Whenever you get anxious, whenever you become depressed, whenever you lose hope, stop what you're doing and remember history. You know, it's, it can be as simple as, as dusting off the old photo albums, it can be as simple as reading an old diary or journal entry that you've written in the past during a difficult time. It can be as simple as calling a dear friend or family member and recounting stories of old. I know know the challenges that some of you are facing today. I know that there are some in this room whose relationships are struggling. I know that there are some in this room who are barely, barely earning enough money to get by every day. I know there are some in this room who are concerned about keeping the lights on and food on the plate. And I know it's easy to look at these challenges and to simply grow depressed. To simply think, you know, God, You've abandoned me. You have forsaken me. Look at my lot in life. God, where are You? I know it's easy for many of us to think that and to suppose that, but in difficult times such as these, Paul says, remember history. Remember that even though you have not faced a greater challenge than perhaps this one that is before you, God has. He has overcome every obstacle in His path. He can get you through this. Call upon Him for help. Romans 10, 9 and 10. Call upon Him for salvation deliverance. Call upon Him for help in your time of need. Ask your church family for help. Don't give up. Don't wallow in pity. Don't lose hope. We can get through the hardships that we face. And one day, one day, we will look back and we will say, thank you God for preserving me. Thank you God for getting me through this time. You know, this is a season, this is my favorite season, the season of Thanksgiving. And with whatever challenges you face today, there's no better time to recall the goodness of God, the history of God's goodness to you and to your family and to your children and to your grandchildren than a time like this. Appeal to history and let that appeal give you hope for the road ahead. Paul knows his history. He knows that a thousand years before him, one of the greatest prophets of Israel, Elijah, felt despondent as many Jews, uh, as many of his own countrymen, as, as the leaders of his very land had forsaken the Lord God. Elijah believed in the Lord, and yet he was quite sure that he was all alone as a follower of God. Verse 3, Lord, they have killed Your prophets and they've torn down Your altars and I alone am left. And they seek My life. Elisha feared for his life. Why? Because Queen Jezebel, the the wicked wife of King Ahab, had publicly pronounced, she had made a vow that she was going to kill him. Read 1 Kings chapter 19. Elisha feared for his life. And it seemed that no one could save him from the queen. Elisha had, uh, had chastised her worship of Baal. He had condemned this pagan god. And he had told Israel to forsake it. But the queen was incensed by this and came after his life and so he looked up to God and said, God, am I the only one left? Am I, have You forsaken me? Have You abandoned me? But what does the divine response say? What did God say in response? Verse 4, I have reserved for Myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. Appeal to history. Appeal to history, Paul says. Remember the story of Elijah. Just the knowledge of this truth, that there were some 7,000 like-minded believers in Israel, just the knowledge of this gave Elijah the strength to carry on. It gave him hope. It gave him encouragement. Now, I want to put that number in perspective for a minute. 7,000 men in in Israel that have not bowed the knee to Baal. Historians estimate that there were between 3 and 4 million Jews living in the land of Israel during the time of Elijah. Three or four million. Let's say the low one. Let's say there were three million Jews living in the land of Israel when God made this response to Elijah. God's (laughs) promise to Elijah that there were some 7,000 like-minded believers like him in Israel meant that only two-tenths of one percent of the population of the Jews were followers of the Lord God. Two-tenths of 1% of the people in Israel. 7,000 out of 3 million were like-minded with Elijah. We might say that it doesn't take much to give encouragement and hope. We can find it in the smallest of ways. We can give it in the smallest of ways. It can be as simple as listening to a friend who's hurting. It can be as simple as cooking them a meal. It can be as simple as giving them a hug. Elijah was encouraged that two-tenths of 1% were like him. He was encouraged that two-tenths of 1% of his countrymen knew precisely what he was going through. They could identify with him living in a culture that had gone from deeply religious to deeply paganistic. They too were starting to feel the effects of religious persecution by their own countrymen. Friends, whatever you are facing, you are not alone. Look around you. Look around you. Whatever you are facing, look around you. It's possible that two-tenths of one percent can identify with you right now. No, I'm kidding. More than that. It's greater than that. We can identify with you. We can identify with your hardship. It's not just two-tenths of one percent that can identify with your situation today. There is more. There is more who can identify with your financial troubles. There is more who can identify with your marital problems. There is more who can identify than what you think is out there. And they are here in this room. And they're here to help. Together, Paul is urging the Jews, the Jewish Christians to whom he writes, and now to us, that we are to call upon the Lord for deliverance and look to each other for daily help. Whenever you are dismayed, remember history. Remember your history. But more importantly, remember the history of God's people. Were our lives contingent upon us, we would wither away. But thank God, our, lives, our very lives have been called. They've been chosen. They've been set apart by God Himself. And so Paul says to the Jews of his day, don't be discouraged. God has not forsaken us. He has not forgotten those whom He foreknew, whom He chose. Remember, 7,000 did not bow the knee to Baal. And so also, God is setting aside another group. Take a look at verse 5. Even so then, at this present time, there is a remnant according to the election of grace. And if it is by grace, then it is no longer of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. And some of your Bibles also read, but if it is of works, it is no longer grace. Otherwise, work is no longer work. That latter part is listed in some Scriptures. It's not listed in others. depends on the Scripture that you have in your hand. Um, The majority of Greek manuscripts include that latter part of verse 6, but some do not. Though Israel has been disobedient and contrary, hardened and blinded to the truth, collided with the message of Jesus, though presently a vessel of wrath, just, just as in the time of Elijah, so also in the time of Paul the Apostle, there is a remnant. It may just be two-tenths of 1%. But there is a remnant that God is preserving that He is setting aside for His purposes. And He's not doing so because they deserve it. No one deserves salvation. Salvation is always by grace. And if it is by grace, he writes in verse six, it is no longer of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. A remnant of Israel survived during Elijah's day, so also a remnant of Israel survived during the days of the Apostle Paul. And still today, today, a remnant of Israel are being set aside according to the election of grace. Because God's promise to Israel are irrevocable. But for Paul and his fellow Jewish Christian brethren, the encouragement of a small remnant did not take away the pain of the vast majority of the Jews who were still blinded to the truth. And so Paul continues in verse 7. He says, What then? Israel has not obtained what it seeks, but the elect have obtained it. And the rest, Paul writes, were blinded. We've learned this in our studies in Romans 9, 10, 11. We don't need to belabor the point, but Paul Paul continues to speak of it. He says, Just as it is written, God has given them the spirit of stupor, eyes that they should not see and ears that they should not hear to this very day. And David says, Let their table become a snare and a trap A stumbling block and a recompense to them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they do not see and bow down their back always. These are Paul's making loose paraphrases of passages from Deuteronomy and Isaiah and the Psalms. He's quoting the Law and the Prophets and the Wisdom literature to establish his point that the majority of the Jews have turned away from the Lord God have been blinded, have been hardened. And uh, again, I say we, we really needn't dissect verses 8, 9, and 10. The point is clear. The majority of Paul's countrymen are hardened. They're blinded. And Paul is greatly grieved and upset by this. He says earlier in Romans, I wish that I were accursed for my own countrymen who are in this state. It's the same thesis that Paul has said from the beginning of Romans 9 that Israel has been temporarily blinded to the Gospel of Jesus Christ. He said it time and again. And his audience is well acquainted with this truth. But we need an end on this tone of negativity because it isn't the tone of Romans 11. We will stop at verse 10 today. But as we continue on later in verse, in chapter 11, we will see that the tone of that chapter is so much more positive than it is negative. That, that, that God has not forsaken Israel is the tone of that passage. That God has not abandoned Israel becomes the thesis of this passage. That God has not forsaken His chosen people. And we know this. We know this to be true. Our our very Messiah, Jesus Christ, was born a Jew. He chose twelve Jewish men through whom the Gospel of the New Covenant would be broadcast to the world. God appointed a Jewish man, Paul of Tarsus, as the chief apostle through whom the New Covenant would be spread to all the nations of the world. God still has a place For his people Israel, he has not forsaken her. She's gone through slavery in Egypt and slavery in Babylon. She's gone through countless wars with Canaanite tribes. She's gone through periods where she had kings and where she didn't have kings, where she was a united nation and where she was a divided nation. She went through the war against Rome in A.D. 70, when over one million Jews were killed and the nations scattered throughout the world. She's gone through 6 million of her own people being slaughtered by Hitler and Stalin at World War II. And this is to say nothing, nothing of other great persecutions and trials in which the Jewish people experienced property confiscation, synagogue burning, mobbing, forced conversions, torture, expulsion from nations, all by Christians, by Catholics, by Muslims, by atheists. There's not a people group on earth that has not persecuted the Jewish people. And yet, in 1948, demonstrating yet again He has not forsaken His people. The only nation in the history of the world to be scattered and reconstituted as a nation was the nation of Israel since 1948. And we know, our Bible teaches us in Revelation chapter 7 that in the tribulation, 144,000 of them are going to be set aside, sealed and protected from the great wrath that is coming upon the earth. We know, according to Zechariah 12, 13 and 14, we know, according to Revelation 12 and 14, that God is going to miraculously and supernaturally protect His chosen people during the end of the tribulation. We know that the disciples, according to the words of Jesus in Matthew 19 and Luke 22... Based on the words of Jesus, the disciples are going to sit on twelve thrones in the kingdom, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. We know that on the new Jerusalem, the new heavens and earth, the place where we will reside for all of eternity, in the new Jerusalem, on the gates, atop the gates of the new Jerusalem, are going to be written the names of the twelve tribes of the Jews. We know that on the foundations of this city, on the twelve foundations, the twelve corners of this city, on the base of it will be written the twelve names of the Jewish apostles. You see, friends, Bible-believing Christians have two options, and only two options, when they are faced with Jewish descriptions time and time again in the Scriptures. They can either, one, read it plainly, and believe it means what it says. That there is a future for the Jewish people. Or they can secondly, read all these descriptions of Israel in the Old and the New Testament and spiritualize it, call it an analogy, a metaphor, and whisk it away and say the church has overtaken all of the promises, all of the hopes, all of the information in the Scriptures that God has promised to Israel. It's called replacement theology or covenant theology. We as a church, we reject that. We reject that the church has replaced Israel. We reject that. We say, no, there is so much indication by Jesus, by Paul, by Zechariah, by so many others in Scripture, and so many places in Scripture where the Jewish people are called out by name and told they have a future. To spiritualize those texts, to cast them aside, to analogize them, is to misread them. And some of you may be wondering, I, I, well, I, don't, I, don't, know. I don't know Christians that do that or churches that do that. Believe me, friends, a great many churches and Christians do this. They suppose that the church is the replacement of Israel. And they spiritualize every single text they come to in the New Testament that makes a promise to the people of, of the Jews. We reject that. I, I, uh, I wear this pen today. I don't wear it often. Elias gave me this pen. Elias is, uh, is a Messianic Jew who attends our church. He's a Jew um, in his ethnic origin. A Jew who has come to believe in Jesus as his Messiah. Messianic Jew. And he gave me this lapel to, uh, to wear during my uh, teaching of Romans 9, 10, and 11. This is the first time I've worn it. I haven't worn it yet. I, I should have. Um, but I wear it today to say clearly that there is a reason There is a reason why this nation supports Israel. There's a reason for it. It is because, friends, it is because we have had leaders in high places in this nation who have recognized, based on this, that the people of the Jews deserve our protection. That the people of the Jews deserve the land in which they now live. We don't we don't, as a nation ignore injustices that they may commit. We don't ignore uh, moments in which Israel acts in ways that are not keeping with the Lord. We don't condone that. But we do support the people of the Jews. Their right to live in that land. And the reason we support it is because this book supports it. And the reason this nation supports it is because we have been blessed to have godly leaders in high places who have read this book and recognized our indebtedness to the people of the Jews. A people who have given us our very Messiah, Jesus Christ. And the day that this great nation of ours forsakes its support of the Jews will be an awful day. It will be an awful day. I pray that day never comes. And we should continually remind our nation's leaders to support God's chosen people because God has not forsaken them yet. There is a remnant. There is a remnant of the 13 million Jews that exist on this earth today. There is a remnant that God is setting aside for a very special purpose at the end of this age. And we, We will support it. I choose to believe the Bible means what it says when it talks about Israel. I choose to believe that Paul and Jesus and Zechariah mean what they say when they speak of the future of Israel. And this gives me hope. That just as a nation that has been through as much as the Jews have been through, and yet are still preserved, it gives me hope that God can also preserve me and preserve you in all your times of trouble. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for a reminder in your word today that you have not forsaken your people, Israel. Lord, we affirm, based on the words of our Lord, of our chief apostle, of Zechariah the prophet before them, we affirm. That Israel is Your people, Lord. And that we as Gentiles, Lord, we've been grafted in. We've been blessed because of the temporary blindness to Israel. But Lord, we know and affirm that You have a plan for Your chosen people. That You have not forsaken them. Lord, how can we look upon history and think otherwise? No other nation has come through what they have come through and be still alive and well today. So Lord, we pledge our support to the people of the Jews, Your people, Lord. And we ask that You would hasten the day when You would come and You would lift the veil from their eyes. When You would lift the spirit of stupor from their eyes. When You would lift the hardness, lift the blindness away from them that they might look upon the Lord Jesus Christ, and cry out to Him. Confess Him for salvation, for deliverance. Lord, we ask that You would hasten that day. Meanwhile, Father, we will do all we can to support the people of Israel knowing that You have a plan for them. We ask Your blessing upon our nation as we do this, Lord. Many nations that have not supported Israel have suffered as a result throughout history. We ask, Father, that our nation and its leaders would be strong in its support of this nation, particularly in the face of its present travails. Father, but we appeal to history. We don't lose hope. We look back and we know that even if it's only two-tenths of 1% who have not bowed the knee to Baal, we know, Father, that You will bring forth a remnant according to grace, and prove Yourself faithful. We ask that day to come quickly, Lord. In Jesus' name, Amen.